Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. We are deep into August at this point, so you've either started back and are in full swing for the school year, or you're getting close to getting back, and work is definitely on your mind anyway. By mid-August, almost everyone seems to be in some kind of work mode to some small or large degree. I spent last week in Las Vegas on vacation with my crew, that core group I talked about a few weeks back. There were actually uh, 12 of us, six couples, uh, and we had a great time. It's not necessarily the best time to go to Vegas, but the vast majority of this group are educators, and so summer really is the only time we can all kind of coordinate traveling together, and we tend to do that at least once a summer. Uh, Schools don't get back in British Columbia. They don't get back until after Labor Day, so there's still a little bit of summer left over, but I know that uh, the vast majority are kind of getting back into work mode as well. So everybody's in full swing with work mode. I'm back to work this week. I'll be in Wyoming on Thursday and Friday. A few reminders as we get going today. Of course, the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training. That'll be in Long Beach, California, September 21st and 22nd. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. Uh, all that information can be found on the Solution Tree website. Of course, there are links in the show notes for those as well. Uh, the other conference, of course, I keep mentioning uh, throughout the summer is the Teach Better Conference. That'll be happening in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Lots of great speakers lined up for that. Use the code SHIMMER22 for a $25 discount on your registration. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Hope you stick around, and a big thank you to the longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Lainey Rowell. Lainey is the author of the recently released Evolving with Gratitude, Small Practices and Learning Communities that Make a Big Difference with Kids, Peers, and the World. So gratitude, of course, is going to be our focus today. And Natalie Vardabasso returns again uh, for Assess That with Tom and Nat. We're going to talk assessment uh, at the end of the episode. So that is today's plan. Let's get to it. with Lainey Rowell is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by declaring that teaching still matters. Now, I know some of you might be thinking that this open is going to be about the importance of our profession in greater society, right? That teachers still play an important role in our society, and that it's time for all of the teacher bashing and the bullshit that's hurled at educators to stop. Now, all of that would be true, times a thousand, but that's not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about today or more specifically, what I'm bristling at today is the way that many in our profession, and I'm not saying all, I'm not saying most, but the way that many teachers in our profession run away from this idea of teaching. What do I mean by that? Well, I give you exhibit A. I don't teach. I facilitate. What a bunch of nonsense. Now, I know that makes us sound smart. I'm a facilitator, which is what I suspect it's primarily designed to do because... This whole desire for dichotomy is irresistible. But for me, it's tipping the scales at this point and maybe revealing that we're just all too smart for our own goods. We're constantly trying to outsmart ourselves. What in the world does that even mean? I'm a facilitator. I know there's this caricature of teaching and the caricature is articulated often as the sage on the stage. But do any of us really believe that that's the entirety of teaching? Do we, does anybody believe that that's what teaching is? Who said teaching is only lecturing? I'll answer for you. No one. No one said that. 
This is a manufactured dichotomy designed to create the perception that some of our colleagues are levitating above the rest of us. Everyone, everyone knows that there's a place for direct instruction. When our students don't know something, understand something, struggle to do something, you show them. Yes, you can provide them with feedback. And sometimes that feedback can come in the form of questions and cues and prompts and cause thinking and all of that. But feedback is most effective when it addresses partial understanding, or as John Hattie asserts, faulty interpretation. If the students are still at a novice level, you probably need to show them. You need to model. Are we not supposed to model? Modeling. What exactly is modeling if it's not directly showing or <gasps> teaching? Yeah, modeling and teaching. For the life of me, I honestly can't understand why some in our profession, so proud, so competent, continuously try to run away from the very name of our profession. We teach, and we all know that entails creating a variety of experiences that slowly transfer responsibility for monitoring, for decision-making, from the teacher, yeah, that's right, from the teacher to the students. Can you imagine a coach saying this? I don't coach basketball. I just facilitate it. What? So you just roll the balls out on the court and hint that those round things go in that round hoop that just happens to be 10 feet off the ground? Where do you think the round ball should go? I'm not going to tell you. I don't want to be the sage on the stage. I know I'm being a little hyperbolic here. But honestly, I think I've come to a point in my career where I'm just a little tired of this nonsense designed to just sound smart. We don't need to sound smart because we are smart, okay? And I know that's a fixed mindset statement. You're just going to have to deal with it, okay? We're highly educated. We're competent professionals who need to go about the business of teaching in all of its 360-degree glory. We use direct instruction. We use questioning, inquiry-based approaches, problem-based approaches, student-centered approaches, all of it. That's teaching. Why are we so afraid to call it that? Well, well, Tom, you know, when people say that, what they really mean is, look, just stop. How about this? How about you say what you mean? It cracks me up when people have to explain their explanation. And you see this with politicians all the time. The president or the prime minister, they go on camera. They're in full view of everybody. They say something. We all heard it. Like, we're not idiots. We heard it. We know exactly what they said. But then the next day, all of the handlers and aides and spin doctors hit the airwaves and try to re-explain the words that we all heard. We heard it. But, but, what, but what they really meant was this. I mean, this is the definition of political spin. I know that. We all heard it. Are you, You're now trying to get us to unhear it? So when you say, I don't teach, we all hear it. If you follow up with, well, I mean, of course I teach. Sometimes you have to. Then why did you say what you said in the first place? If that's not what you meant, then don't say it. Say what you mean. If you have to explain in multiple sentences what you mean by a five-word sentence, then maybe your sentence originally is nonsense. I don't teach. What do you mean you don't teach? Now, if that launches you into some long-winded explanation, then maybe you, maybe you need to be clearer. 
Words matter, or don't words matter? Do they matter? Do they not matter? I know what the phrase, I don't teach, means. I know what every single one of those words means. I don't need it re-explained to me. I know what they mean. I just think we need to stop trying to act so smart and just be smart. Because I said, we are smart. We're competent. We're professionals. We teach. Teaching involves a lot of different strategies. Imagine a doctor. I don't treat patients. I just facilitate the discovery of their own healing. (laughs) God, cue the eye roll. We're teachers, okay? We teach. That is what we do. Direct instruction is a part of teaching, but it's certainly not even close to encompassing all that all teachers do. I'm all about student-centeredness and student investment. Our, our most recent book, Jackpot, Nurturing Student Investment Through Assessment, was just released last Thursday, August 11th. So before any of you start thinking that I want to bring back the lecture, you couldn't be more wrong. Teaching and lecturing are not synonyms, and they shouldn't be treated as such. Direct instruction is a form of teaching. Imagine if I said something like this. I don't work out. I lift weights. Exactly. It sounds silly, doesn't it? Direct instruction is a form of teaching, but so is inquiry-based learning. So are all of the student-centered constructs that we create. All of those opportunities. Let's not run away from our profession by trying to avoid the title of our profession. I'm a teacher. No, I haven't been a classroom teacher for a very long time. But when people ask me, especially those not in the profession, they ask me, what do you do? I say, I'm a teacher, period. Now, inside the profession, people who are in the know, when I'm talking to educators, I more clearly define my role and what I do now, and I get a little bit more specific. But at my core, I am a teacher, and I'm proud of that. And you should be too. And we should stop trying to run away from this. We teach. Teaching still matters. It will always matter. And I, for one, am growing a little bit tired of those within our profession who seem to want to run away from that title. And if you're not trying to run away from that title, then clearly this is some kind of performance designed to make you appear next level. Oh, you heathens just teach? That's so 19th century. I facilitate learning. Teaching and learning are not dichotomous. Teaching is what adults do. And it's the means. Learning is what the students do, and it's the end. If you want to say, my style of teaching is to engineer a problem-based experience for students, no problem. But we're teachers, and we need to just own that, because it is a noble profession and is important to our society. Caricatures and unhelpful false dichotomies don't really add anything of substance to our profession. Joining me today is Lainey Rowell. Lainey is an educator, international consultant, a podcaster, TEDx speaker, and the author of Evolving with Gratitude and Evolving Learner. Her areas of expertise include learner-driven design, social-emotional learning, online blended learning, and professional learning. She is an experienced teacher and an experienced district leader. Lainey's work has been highlighted in many publications, including Edutopia, OC Family Magazine, eSchool News, ASCD, K-12 Leadership Smart Brief, PBS uh, PBS NewsHour, and K-12 
dive. Uh, since 2014, Laney has been a consultant for the Orange County Department of Education's Institute for Leadership Development. There's a lot of roles, a lot of responsibility, and certainly a lot of influence. Laney, welcome to the podcast. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me, Tom. Super glad to have you here. Uh, of course, I was on your podcast, I think, about a month ago. So full disclosure, this is really about me turning the tables on you, uh, <laughs> turning the microphone around and uh, never miss that opportunity. So I do, in all seriousness, appreciate you uh, uh, returning the favor. And and uh, in all honesty, it has been really great to connect with you. You, you know, we, of course, have been connected online and, and have, have communicated that way through Twitter and other social media accounts. But just up until recently, you and I had never met face to face. And when we had a chance to, when I had a chance, to be on your podcast. That was a great opportunity for us to connect. And and I would say now is the opportunity for, for us to do it again. And I'm happy to say that I think you and I have become friends and I really appreciate that. So glad you're here, Lainey. Um, before we get into the questions, how about we start with a rundown of the career for those who may not be familiar with you uh, and your work. Take us through the journey so far the professional autobiography, if you will. Where did your education career begin? How did, and how did you end up where you are today as this prolific writer, the speaker, podcaster, et cetera? Take us through the arc of that journey. Well, thank you. First of all, that was all very generous. And also, I consider you a friend too. So I'm glad to hear you say that the feeling is mutual. All We're right, right awesome. on the same page. Right. Um, Just friends so, having a conversation, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right, here we go. Take us through the career. Yeah, so I was a psychology major at San Diego State, and I am just fascinated with people and relationships. That felt like a really good major. And honestly, I didn't really know where I was going to go with it after college, but I ended up getting to do my field work in a school. It was a special school, a non-public school, and I was working with in one child in particular with special needs. And... I just really fell in love with being in a school and working with kids. So um, my family will probably say I changed lanes without signaling and I just went, I'm going to be a teacher. And they're like, oh, that's an interesting choice. You weren't, I mean, they didn't say this, but the subtext was clearly like, you're not a stellar student. Like, is this really what you're going to do? But I definitely wanted to work with kids. I put all my energy into becoming a teacher. And in the classroom, I was very focused on positive classroom culture, and I just really wanted to bring kind of the things I had learned from my psychology degree into the classroom. And I, I really was planning to go into special ed. That was always the game plan at some point. And then I got really interested in how technology could be a, a pathway to meeting the needs of all learners and not just academic needs, but actual social emotional needs, how we can use it to connect and collaborate, to give voices to kids who maybe are a little shy raising their hands on the fly or, you know, those types of things. So I really leaned into innovation and education technology, and I was still doing a lot of the positive classroom culture things. And my principal saw what I was doing. I had actually, I actually ended up being a teacher, opening a brand new school in like my second or thir third year of teaching. And I was asked to do demo lessons and co-teach with my other teachers on my campus. And eventually, um, you know, I moved from, you know, being in the classroom and a teacher leader. And eventually I moved into a district leadership position, working with the 33 schools, the 22,000 kids and the 1200 teachers that we had in our district. Not a, not a huge, huge district compared to some, like I'm in, you know, 
Orange County, which is just south of Los Angeles. And so that's a huge district, LAUSD, but still uh, for even for Orange County, just kind of a large district. So it was a lot of fun. And then at some point, uh, Apple reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in joining their consulting team and being um, part of the national professional learning team. And so I did that for a long time. I love that. I was still doing a ton of other things like with Q. And then I decided that I would really love to get my hands back into like what's happening, you know, in the schools and the districts in my own area. And I was actually offered an opportunity to work in for Orange County Department of Ed as a consultant. Mm -hmm. And so really fun to be a part of that Institute um, for Leadership Development. And so that's kind of where I am now. Fantastic. Um, It's an interesting, as we transition to talk about uh, your your latest book, Evolving with Gratitude, it's an interesting transition in the sense that on the one hand, your entry point and your interest levels were all around technology and the use of technology, not just the implementation of the tool, but how to utilize those tools. But then now writing about gratitude. And I feel like your book, your current release is so timely and so necessary, not just for educators, but but for people and, and that focus on on gratitude. So let's let's start with the big picture around that book. You know, I, I'm also a big, as you know, when I was on your podcast talking about the, the I'm a big believer in the power of gratitude. So I, I just for listeners, where did the inspiration come from for the book, Evolving with Gratitude? Is this something that has always been a part of you, something that you've always thought about? Or was there maybe something more recent that sort of bubbled up to the surface? Or I don't want to say an acute event or just yeah. what was it that inspired you to write this book? So if, so there were some, some big moments that inspired mm-hmm. this. You know, like I said, I've always been really focused on building community and relationships. That's always been a really big thing. But if I'm being perfectly honest, I wasn't necessarily focused in on gratitude specifically. I knew mm-hmm. it was important. Um, I would hope that if you would ask my lifelong friends, has Lainey always been a grateful person? I hope they would say yes. But I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm. I think I'm much more grateful now than I was before. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but what probably was the kind of big moment where I started to look into this was, and this is a big moment for a lot of people. Unfortunately, a very tragic moment for a lot of people too was you know that March of 2020, and yeah. so that was you know for me you know, you kind of see what's happening in your world and you're like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And I had, that was March 13th was the day where my kids' schools are shutting down and Mm -hmm. it's like, everything's, this is just, we don't understand what's going on. We've never seen anything like this. And so there's kind of this fear and like, I don't know what's happening in the world. And then there's part of me that, and I've given myself permission to grieve this, but like, I spent years working on that book with Christy Andre and Lauren Steinman and Evolving Learner launches March 13th. No one's paying attention to a book launch when the world's shutting down. So there was part of me that was just kind of really like, this just is terrible. This is like terrible on the grand scale of like humanity. And then on like, personally, this is just like really bad for me. (laughs) I'm so (laughs) unhappy here. Mm -hmm. And then I know the poem came out from Laura Kelly Fanucci, it came out on March 16th on Instagram. It went viral. I don't think I saw it necessarily on the 16th, but at some point within the first week of shutdown, this poem comes out and um, it's basically like when this is over. And I, I don't do the poem justice, but she goes line by line, like shaking the hand of a stranger, full shelves on the store, um, 
or for full shelves at the store, you know, those kind of things, like just the mm-hmm. simple things that we took for granted pre-pandemic. And so it was a really good moment to pause and be like, okay, I'm really frustrated, disappointed, upset about this thing happening for the big reasons and also for the personal reasons. But I think I need to stay a little more focused on or a lot more focused on what's happening in my world that I can appreciate my kids and my, you know, my kids, my family, they're all healthy. My husband's healthy. We're all here together. We'll get through this together. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first thing we started doing gratitude journals and it was really helpful for us. Um, I started making gratitude jars for people and giving them out. And I thought like, well, this probably won't mean anything to them, but it was helpful, you know, practicing gratitude is helpful to us. So I'm going to just do it for the, and, you know, give it to my neighbors and, and they're like sharing, you know, over time people would come back like, couple months later down the road and be like, you know, that actually really helped us. Mm -hmm. It seems like such a small thing, but that really helped us. And I kind of tucked that in my head, but I didn't really think too much of it. And then in early 2021, George Kuros invited me to write a chapter for Because of a Teacher. And I wrote Mm -hmm. about um, Monique, who was a principal of mine, who when I was opening that new school, she's the one that gave me the opportunity to come out of the, you know, move into a teacher leader position to do things with my peers that ultimately led to, you know, more of a leadership role in education beyond the classroom, because I think all teachers are leaders, but this was doing things on a, on a scale. And so um, that was just this like public display of gratitude that I was, I felt so much joy writing that chapter. And then uh, Stephanie Rothstein kind of made the joke, like, you could write a whole book about how grateful you are to have written about, gra- you know, <laughs> about yeah, this yeah. this principle. And I was like, yeah. well, that's interesting. Um, yeah. But I'd also written a, a, an article on Edutopia that, um, and there's some analytics you can kind of see, and most people don't pay attention to it, but us writers do pay attention to how popular the articles get. And mm-hmm. it wasn't my most popular Edutopia article, but it was the one where I got the most DMs and the most comments saying, gratitude is so important. This right. changed my life. And so that was kind of where I was like, okay, I maybe need to take a, a, a closer look at this. And that's, yeah. that's what led to the book. Interesting. You know, I, as you're describing, I mean, March 13th, 2020 is going to go down in history as another one of those dates about like, where were you? What, oh. you know, that the whole idea. Now, Lainey, I want to ask you, because I think sometimes we have this I don't know, this false understanding or misunderstanding about gratitude. You're a human being and you put your life and your soul into writing a book and the book gets published on March 13th, 2020. No one would blame you for being upset. And yes, there are things happening in the world that are much bigger than us. But sometimes I think that whole idea, you know, that that the always the idea that people have it worse than you is an easy way to dismiss how people are feeling. Mm-hmm. And you would have every right to feel disappointed. However, what I recognize in the way you describe that story is that you're not willing to wallow in that. So where do you draw the line from, from your perspective, having been through yeah. through that? Where do you draw the line? Where do you allow yourself to feel those feelings that are authentic and real? And yet, is it that you try to move, like find ways through it slowly or process them? What is it for you? Like, how did you do that where you didn't dishonor your feelings, but at the same time were understanding perspective around what was happening in the world? That's And, and thank you for that. That's That was really beautifully said. I think, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was researching about gratitude is that when you have a grateful disposition, because you you can feel grateful. But emotions are fleeting. And so that can just dissipate. And then, you know, something bad happens and you really let it get you down. 
But when you have a grateful disposition, you can actually move out of the those bad feelings, what we call negative feelings, easier, quicker, things like that. So, but one of the things that, and I'm so glad you asked this question because I don't want people to think that I wrote a book about gratitude because I think we should be happy all the time and negative feelings are a bad thing because they're part of the full human experience. We want to experience all the emotions. They are just part of being human and it's a good thing. If, it, if we were never sad, you know, there we wouldn't appreciate when things are really good. We need those, you know, and we also need to pay attention to those emotions that we're not enjoying their signals, their signposts. And so your question, you know, how do you know when to move out of it? I will tell you there was a, a little behind the scenes drama, actually, even with the launch of Evolving with Gratitude. And it actually was supposed to come out in the May 31st, I think was the original launch date. And there was a little hiccup with Amazon. We don't need to get into that. It all got worked out. Thank you, Amazon. And uh, <laughs> shout but, out to Amazon. Shout out to Amazon. <laughs> um, but I, I really lost it that day. I had people scheduled to join for the live book launch uh, on Facebook. I lost it. And I just mm -hmm. sat in it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be sad about this. This is something to be disappointed about. It was supposed to happen. It's not happening. I had told people about it, you know, just, just the, mostly just the contributors. Um, but then what I did is I, you know, looked to the strategies in my book. And so the next, uh, the next morning I said, okay, that was a really, sorry, you might have to put the E on this episode. That was a really crappy day. Um, mm -hmm. but this is still going to happen. This book isn't going away. It's going to happen. I need to do something. And I went out and I, and I'm very blessed that I live a couple miles from the ocean. I went and I did a savoring walk on the beach and I just really looked around and appreciated everything that, you know, I was really present, really paying attention to all the things going on that were good around me. And I just turned around and I'm like, okay, you know, so I, I think that's a personal choice. And I think it depends on what the, what the, the thing is the scale of the thing, you know, how long are you going to grieve right. things like that? Um, it's a personal choice, but I think we have to be able to move ourselves out of it. We don't want it to be pervasive and ongoing. And right. that kind of stuff. I have always found that uh, setting a time limit has helped me, you know, yeah. I'll say to myself, okay, I'm going to give myself 48 hours, depending how big it is, 24 yeah. hours, 48 hours, and I'm going to have my pity party. And then I'm going to, put it away. And I'm going to try to move on from that. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting when we talk about gratitude and the influence it has on our mindset, it makes me think about the difference between authentic expressions of gratitude and that which can be sort of mechanical or superficial. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people can, un, you know, inadvertently get into a situation, they're going to express gratitude, and they start saying things like, well, I'm grateful for the water in my tap. I'm grateful for my floor. I'm grateful for my blinds. I'm grateful for my window. I'm grateful for the sky. I'm great. And it just is this mechanical exercise that isn't really um, anything of substance. So for, from your perspective, what, what are the ways, how do we know that our expressions of gratitude are authentic and really having the impact we want them to have versus that mechanical kind of yep. gratitude like what do you for you um mm -hmm. what's the difference like how do you know how do you how do you tell the difference so it's interesting so there's the experiencing of gratitude and then there's the expressing of gratitude so i'll focus on the expressing of gratitude sure. like when we're outwardly we want to show people that we appreciate them kind of thing and so and by the way like just to be a total nerd about it like <laughs> the scientists say um like 
there is a tiny distinction between appreciation and gratitude, but they actually can't articulate what it is. So, mm. so I'm throwing that out there, but I'm going to use the words interchangeably because until okay. the scientists can tell me what the actual difference is, I'm just going to say they're interchangeable. That's right. We're going to put it on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so when I was doing the research for the book, uh, one of the, one of the books that I read was called the gratitude project and Jeremy Adams Smith shares in it that the richest of thank yous are going to acknowledge intentions, costs, and value. Hmm. So the intention, like what was this person hoping this would bring to me? The cost, like what did, what did maybe they give up or have to sacrifice to do this for me? Maybe it was time, you know, mm -hmm. and then what value does this bring to me? What, what am I truly enjoying or appreciating out of this. And so I think it's really important when you want to give a good thank you, process through all of those and try and articulate it and then share that out. Mm -hmm. And so, and if I, if I could, I'll just give you an example because it's totally top of mind. I was in Dallas yesterday speaking at a conference and I was doing a session on gratitude. Mm -hmm. When the presentation's over, you know, I, my favorite thing is when people come up and talk to me afterwards, cause they like, maybe they have a question or they want to share an experience. That's one of my favorite things. I'm sure for you too, right, Tom, you like right. it when yeah. people want to, like, you, sure. I care about engage, this. Work. Engage. Yeah, for come sure. I love it. Me. Come talk to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this principal comes over to me and she pulls me aside and she goes, look, I love my staff. I love them. So I appreciate them so much. And I do things to show appreciation for them, but I sense they don't feel like it's authentic. And I said, okay, can you like give me an example of something that you would do to show appreciation to staff? And she goes, well, I take, I take so much time and I write these thank you cards to them. And then I put them in their mailboxes. And I said, and I tried to say it so, so nicely, not judgy at all. I tried really hard um, because I know her heart's in the right place. And I said, did you happen to give them out all at the same time? And she said, yes. And I said, so when they go to their mailbox, they see everyone has the card just like they got, right? And they don't know what's in the card, but they may be assuming that you wrote the same thing to all of them, even though you poured your heart out and you're writing these very specific things. So that's when I said, you're being authentic. It's just not coming across authentic to them. So think about there's other ways that you could do that. Like you can, you can give those out, not all at the same time. You know, you right. could do other things. Dwight Carter wrote a beautiful story in the book. And he talks about how he keeps thank you cards in the top drawer of his desk. And honestly, he does it for self-care when he's having like a tough, tough time. He like goes into the drawer and he's like, who can I express gratitude to? And then he's like got these little gold stars and he gives it and people wear them like badges on their, on their lanyards and things like that. And so he's, he's keeping track to make sure he doesn't miss anyone. And everyone at some point feels seen, heard, known and valued, but he's not, he's not doing it all at the same time. And that's mm -hmm. what makes it feel more personal instead yeah. of just a blanket. Thank you. So. Yeah. And, and, and you, you used a word there that I often think about when it comes to authenticity is feel. It feels authentic. And for me, the difference often, maybe, I don't know if you share this perspective or not. So I'd be interested in your, in your perspective on this is that one of the ways that I can sort of tell, at least for myself, the difference between authentic gratitude and mechanical gratitude is you feel it. Mm -hmm. You can feel it in like when you, when you think to yourself, what am I grateful for? 
it kind of it kind of moves you like you feel it in your body you don't it isn't just a clinical exercise of as i was saying before where you're just mm-hmm. rattling off what you're grateful for in more of a clinical do you share that perspective do you i d- i do i think we can have the best of intentions but we can't control how it's going to make them feel right so we can be more intentional about how we deliver it um, Mm -hmm. in hopes that, and, you know, I think Brene Brown has been talking about this a lot Mm -hmm. lately is that, you know, we can't know how other people are feeling. Mm -hmm. We, we can, we can think we know, but we don't ultimately actually know how people are thinking. So that's true. We do our best. We do our best. Right. Yeah. I was thinking more of myself when I'm thinking about what am I grateful for? When I think about what I'm grateful for, I get a feeling inside me that tells me that that really is an authentic, uh, kind of tie. Okay. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit now specifically about education because part of the book, uh, contains, um, stories from, I think, 20 educators from around the world. You've got stories in the book. Um, So I'm wondering for you, when you looked at all of those stories in their totality, were there any themes that emerged? Were there any sort of lessons you learned? Like if you were to look at those stories, say from 30,000 feet, what sorts of themes or like takeaways did you, did you sort of see run across all of those different stories? Well, and unique and dynamic. We're all unique and dynamic. And I would give Katie uh, Novak credit for giving me that phrase because I think it's beautiful in that it captures that we're all different, but I think the dynamic part is also Mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned there's 18 stories by 20 educators. There were a Mm -hmm. couple stories where we had partners writing. And I think that that Josh Stamper's story does a really beautiful job of this as well. And he's focusing on in a leadership role, but it also applies to our students, right? In that there's, Mm -hmm. there's different ways that not only I like to experience and express gratitude, but obviously we're all that way. And so, um, you know, you, he, Joshua actually gets into the, the love languages and things like that. Um, He, he keeps like a spreadsheet of, of, this is how this person likes to receive appreciation. This person is an acts of service person. This person is words of affirmation. This person is gifts. This person is quality time. Like he keeps track of all of that, but Mm -hmm. he's also very clear to say, just because this person is an acts of service person doesn't mean they won't ever want words of affirmation. Right. Right. And so that's where that unique and dynamic comes in, I think, Mm -hmm. because we are all so different. And I think part of the dynamic is it's contextual. And so, you know, if I, you know, you and I both were traveling yesterday, we got home late, you know, Mm -hmm. normally I'm a words of affirmation person, if any of my friends are listening, but uh, (laughs) you know, when I get home late after a trip, a clean kitchen is like (laughs) magic acts of service are like all day what I need on that. So I think that was something that was really special is because Mm -hmm. I would also say that like, I personally, before I did this deep dive, before I read all their stories that, that are in the book, I think, and I don't think I'm alone in this, but I default to, I want to express gratitude in the way that I want people to express it to me. So I'm a words of affirmation all day. I'm always giving people (laughs) words of affirmation. But what I have to remember is there are some of my friends who an act of service is going to go way further for them. And so Mm -hmm. not that I'm always going to do that. Not that I will begrudge them my my words (laughs) of affirmation, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to try and be really intentional with that. So that was kind of something that I thought was was definitely a theme that came out there. 
Yeah, I don't think we're we're silos, right? We don't have one singular way. I mean, there are some preferred ways. I think that might be the best way to say it is we have preferred ways yeah. of expressing or receiving gratitude. Uh, but we we have we are, and that's maybe the dichotomy here is that we're all unique and yet we're all the same in that we will always appreciate a range of experiences that really rounded out, as you say, a clean kitchen, something so yeah. simple yet sometimes so complex, depending on what's been made that day, yes. uh, does, does show that expression. Can we stick with the education part though? Because I'm, I'm trying to, I want to, I want to have you maybe connect the dots for teachers about, mm -hmm. okay, we understand the, this idea of gratitude. I think most people understand its power, not the nuances maybe. And I think that's why they need to read the book, but certainly we get it. How does, how does gratitude, Let's connect it to teaching now. How does gratitude or being a grateful person make me a more effective teacher? And how does that yeah. influence my classroom? Yeah. And so I would say we want to bring gratitude for learning into our classrooms because okay. I think that's something that we maybe haven't always focused on. Maybe there's a newfound appreciation for that time in the classroom to learn with our peers because we, you know, many of us were robbed of that, at least for a period of time during COVID. But I would say that when we're not present and paying attention to what's going on, we, we don't tend to appreciate it. And so we want to, I think on a very like grand scale, bring an appreciation for learning into our our school culture and our classroom culture. Mm -hmm. But then also, so so I in the book I go into talking about community of inquiry and how we want to have social presence and teaching presence and cognitive presence. And so gratitude would be an underlying current in all of those. But if we want to get to more of like the lesson, more of the granular, I would mm -hmm. say, well, when you're practicing gratitude, when you're feeling gratitude and that brain gets flooded with, I call them the happiness chemicals, but you know, <laughs> you can be specific and say dopamine yeah. and serotonin and they have their yeah. nuances as to why they're different. Mm -hmm. But you know, when the brain gets flooded with those happiness chemicals, all the learning centers turn on. And so we can connect this to, for those of you who are familiar with universal design for learning, which I also go into in the book, you right. know, when we're talking about the affective networks and, you know, that's going to be like, what's going to control motivation and priority and like self-regulation. And so mm -hmm. when we are bringing this lens of, and kind of this, you know, disposition of gratitude into teaching and learning then we're kind of coming in with a preparedness. It's it's interesting, right? It's like we often, and I will just take full responsibility. I'm a huge taskmaster. I want to get to business. I want to start checking things off the list, like ASAP. Yeah. yeah. But but first, I want to get people excited about what we're going to learn about. Like this is why you yeah. should care about this. And so there's something to that preparedness before we even get into the teaching and learning that is super important. Mm -hmm. And so again, I point to universal design for learning in there because this is going to tie in with the engagement piece and like, you know, how are we going to get them here with us where they're actually finding this to be important? They're making right. this a priority. They're motivated to learn about mm -hmm. this. Something you made me think of as you were responding there was this idea of incorporating gratitude, authentic, a grateful disposition, et cetera, as a way to help students gain perspective on the stresses and the and the, and some some of the acute struggles they might have. You know, there's a lot that's stressful about what young people experience in schools, and helping them sort of be metacognitive, recognizing mm -hmm. how they're feeling. Recognize is that something you think about as well and talk about? Is that an important part of infusing this into a classroom? So I, yes, I would say yes, definitely. I like to, I, I think it's hard 
I think it's hard to just say, go bring gratitude into your classroom and people are like, okay, thanks. That's super helpful. So (laughs) what, what I look to is something that I have used for years, which is Castle's three signature practices. So I look at the welcoming inclusion activity, Mm -hmm. engaging strategies and the optimistic closure. So I like to bring a specific gratitude practice into one of those. So Mm -hmm. I'll just give you an example of one that I like to do with kids and adults. And it's really kind of a a general gratitude practice that just gets us in the idea of like being grateful to, to be a learner. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's a, you might've even heard of it, like give to take two with post-its, the icebreaker. Mm -hmm. So I would ask the learners, small or tall, you know, Hey, can you, on a post-it, write down something that you're grateful you learned about. And I don't, I try not to give a lot of constraints, but it depends on what we're about to be learning about next. And so just tell me something you're grateful to have learned in your life. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to write that on one post-it. And then I want you to write the exact same thing on another post-it. And then we're going to get up and we're going to go find someone else in the room, hopefully someone we haven't maybe talked to lately. And I want you to exchange and you tell them what you're grateful that you learned. And they're going to say what they're grateful they learned. And you'll exchange the post-its. And then you'll repeat that with another partner. And so it's not, you could make it tied specifically to the content that you've been studying in your class. You know, tell me something that you appreciated that we learned last week, or what was a takeaway from yesterday? Something that you're grateful we discovered yesterday, something like that. Mm So, so something, you know, you can do something like that. You can do it as an engaging strategy. You can do it as an optimistic closure. There's all different ways to bring gratitude in, but the underlying current also is this, we want to be grateful for what we're learning, make those connections to the real world. This is why you should want to know about this. And Mm -hmm. at a minimum, if we can't get kids excited about every little thing we're teaching, let's at least get them excited to be learners. That I know we can do. Yeah, you definitely can, can, can help them get excited about the opportunity that's in front of them, pique their curiosity and, and, and have them experience gratitude in a way that sort of leans into what it is they're about to learn. You know, um, it's interesting because when I was thinking about chatting with you today, one question that came to mind was this notion of, I don't even know if this is the right term, but I kind of call it retroactive gratitude. Um, I think about this a lot because it's a very interesting experience. And what I mean by this, and, and I'm wondering if you've had an experience like this, or I'm wondering if if you have a perspective on that. It's, it's where something that you want to have happen you want it so bad in your life and it doesn't happen and you're so disappointed and you're so upset about it. And then a few weeks later, a few months later, maybe a couple of years later, you start to realize you get this overwhelming feeling of gratitude that it didn't happen, that you you actually didn't get the job or you you actually didn't close on that house or or you didn't get that opportunity in front of you. Um, it, it, it's like an odd phenomenon, uh, but you know, where you become grateful for not getting something or not accomplishing something. It's almost like the opposite. So has anything like that ever happened to you? Or do you have a perspective on that? Like, what are some thoughts that you have about this retroactive gratitude? I don't know. Again, I don't know if that's the right term or not. But but what what are your thoughts around that idea of gratitude and retrospect, if you will? Yeah, so I, I don't know of any longitudinal studies on it, no. but uh, but uh, but and, and I'll just quickly say, you know, the science of gratitude has only been, you know, around for about twenty five years. Dr. Mm-hmm. Robert Emmons is, you know, one of the the leading, if not the leading, science of gratitude experts. The science of gratitude has the research has gone exponential in the last five to ten years. So it wouldn't surprise me if that that study is on the way. But I will just say personally. 
Um, and I'm thinking Garth, Garth Brooks would agree with me in his song Unanswered Prayers, right? right Unanswered right. Prayers is all about that. Right. Um, but I can say I have 100% experienced that on many occasions, on mm-hmm. like personally and professionally. So maybe, you know, I'll even go back to the example I started with in the beginning, you know, the book launching then that was something highly curated that I'd spent years working on. And when, you know, and, and no disrespect to the book, it did well, but to just not get the fanfare and the attention that it would have otherwise, um, I kind of had to go, okay, I need to do different things. And that's when I started the podcast with Bree. And that's when I actually stepped into podcasting. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to just do highly polished, curated things. I can put myself out there in other ways. I started writing articles and being a guest on podcasts and things like that. So I 100% experience this. And then I would just like to add that it does not surprise me that you experience this because I do think you are a very reflective person. And I think you have to be a reflective person to get the benefits of, as you're calling it, the retroactive gratitude, because I think we live in, I think we can have very distracted lives where we live now, like this point in time and only more things are coming to, to be vying for our attention. So I think it's important that we look back and go, what are the things that have happened that actually ended up being a good thing? And I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. for it. And so I definitely think it's an experience. And again, like I said, I'm not surprised that you feel it. <laughs> and, and, I'll, and I'll just add to that, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is negativity bias. And I think we all know what this is. It's that we are wired to notice the negative exponentially more than the positive. And so this maybe happens in the classroom where you have like a really great lesson, you know, probably dozens of lessons in a row that are just amazing. And then you've got one that it just doesn't land. It just didn't work. You got to go. That's, that was a miss. Um, You will perseverate on that, or at least a lot of us do perseverate on that one thing that didn't go well and kind of dismiss all the really good things that did go well. So I think looking back on things that maybe did not go the way that we wanted and ended up being a blessing is a great way to kind of combat that negativity bias. So I love it. Yeah, look, looking well. First of all, Lainey, thank you so much for saying that. That's, uh, I mean, I do try to be a reflective person, so I appreciate you you noticing that. I don't know how effective my reflections are at w- or whatever, but uh, certainly it is something where I think it's important to kind of press pause and reflect on whether or not you know what you wanted was the right thing, or did you get nudged in a different direction? And then you think to yourself, "Wow, what a blessing that I didn't get that job." There, you know, I remember back in 1999, there was a there was a job I wanted so bad and it didn't happen for me, but it caused me then to relocate to a place where I, I no longer live there. But in my working experience, I also developed lifelong friends, people who have become, uh, you know, just like family, friends like family. And I talked about that before on the podcast. Um, but just this, you know, those are things you look back and say, wow, had I got that job, I never would have relocated. We never would have done this. We never would have done that. So yeah. uh, I think it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. Could, before we you know, go ahead, go ahead. No, Lee. I was just going to say, if I, if I could add really quickly, um, yeah. another thing that, that really found fascinating doing the research is Andrea Husong and her team out of, um, I think their University of North Carolina, don't quote me on that, friends, but I know they're in North Carolina. Um, they did some research and they found the components of gratitude to be notice, think, feel, and do. And I mm-hmm. think that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole time, right? So you're right. noticing 
yeah. not just the things that actually were in the moment good, but you're actually noticing yeah. something from the past that right. ended up being good. And you're thinking about how, so you're noticing, you're thinking about how that actually ended up being a really good thing. And this mm -hmm. is, you know, it wasn't, I didn't think it would go that way, but now that it did go this way, I feel right. so you know, and you insert whatever words you want here. And I like to, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm striving for emotional granularity. I've, I've yeah. always used, uh, or not always, but for years I've used the mood meter. I now use the howwefeel.org mm -hmm. app and trying to get a little bit better at identifying those words. And then the do, mm -hmm. you know, what can I do um, to maybe pay it forward for someone else? Because this didn't work out for me, but um, mm -hmm. now it's a blessing. And now I want to go do something good for someone else to celebrate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. You know, before we get to the last uh, two questions, you recently wrote an article because I think when people think of gratitude, and and I do this, I I use a gratitude journal. I, I sort of write every morning, and just and I do it just not that I think that everything that I write is going to happen necessarily, but I write it to reset my frame of mind or my perspective. It changes how I feel, and uh, and when you if you want to change how you feel, you just examine what you're thinking, what your thoughts create your feelings, and so I try to try to manufacture what I'm thinking so that I feel differently. But you recently wrote an Edutopia article about how to express gratitude without journaling. Three, I think it was three ways to express. So, yeah. so there's more than beyond, three, but right, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take, take, take us, give us a few strategies, Lainey, like take us beyond the gratitude journal, which I think a lot mm -hmm. of people recognize. And that's mm -hmm. not to dismiss that as a way, if that works for me and it works for you or works yep. for someone else, I Absolutely. think that's great. But take us beyond the journal and help us understand what are some other small, medium, or large ways that we can kind of feel or experience gratitude or express gratitude. Oh my gosh, you might have to cut me off now because I'm going to go a little. I could right. go forever. Okay, so I, so let me. Just, I'll, I'll give just us say three. here. Give us three. I, I'll talk. Here's what I said. Uh, here's okay. Let me give you three. So one I would say is counterfactual thinking or mental subtraction. So okay. think of an important person or event in your life. Go back to when they came into your life or when that event happened remove the person or the event, now go, okay, these are the things that would have happened, the ripple effects that would have happened if that mm. person didn't enter my life, if that event didn't happen, and really reflect on how different your life would have been. Okay. Then, you know, how would you have felt, all the, all the things, and then, okay, now go back and say, but they are in my life, or this did happen, and then really savor what this has brought you and like sit deeply in that gratitude. So that's one. And I kind of went into deep anyways, positive. Like well, what, what do we call that again? What did you call it? Well, so there's, I've heard it called two different things. Counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual and, thinking. Okay. And mental subtraction is another way to think of it. And so right. it, it, maybe, okay. maybe it's like a brother or a cousin to like the retroactive gratitude in a way. Maybe. Kind maybe of like, like that. It feels sure. a little, a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, the, the, the flip of it maybe, but. Exactly. Okay. What's another one? Okay. Positive affirmations. I would okay. say there is a myth that gratitude means you're completely self-effacing. That's not true. You mm -hmm. can be grateful for yourself and be grateful for others. So I would say positive affirmations are a great way. Um, you can go to VIA character strengths and look up all the different positive characters, uh, characteristics and character traits, I should say, and, mm -hmm. and look and see what you really have. Cause a lot of times we don't appreciate what we have. Mm -hmm. And one more. Oh, this is so hard because there's so many in my mind. Um, okay, I, I'm going to, because I think we probably have some, I would say sketching, drawing, photography. Okay. Right. Um, that was, you know, a gratitude wall 
we we tend to make everything linguistic. I'm so guilty of this, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of non-linguistic ways that we can do representation. So I would mm -hmm. say a gratitude wall with um, some some things that are not necessarily it could be could be could be all of the above, right? Could be yeah. notes, drawings, yeah. sketches, photos, all that kind For of sure. stuff. So. Yeah, maybe and a, gratitude, but you gotta, a gratitude portfolio yeah, <laughs> or something but, like that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Whatever you do, I encourage you to go through the notice, think, feel, do. That's gonna, notice, that's what's going to make it deeper. Yeah, notice, think, feel, do. And I love that because I very much subscribe to that feel. If you don't feel it, it yeah. doesn't feel authentic in that. I mean, Lainey, I know you have a, a, a number of ideas running through your head. We probably could do this for another hour, but uh, we're going to, we're going to finish up here with two questions that I know you're familiar with because you have listened to my podcast as well. And you know, I have two questions. I always ask every guest when they come on. And the first question uh, is an educational question, and you can take this in any direction you need or want to. But the question of course is educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Yes. Long time listener, first time caller, and <laughs> I knew this was coming. So I wish I felt more prepared to answer it because I've already confessed to you. There's a few, more than a few things that keep me up at night. Um, okay. Can I do a couple and kind of quick, but I'll do sure. them quickly. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, it, so time. this is a long time thing. Um, information literacy, web literacy. I have this anxiety that we are uh, not preparing kids for, and, and I'm going to say that I, I'm, I could be more literate, um, but I feel like we need to have more intellectual humility when it comes to going out and finding information. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people are just doing the type and pray into Google and kind of just taking up whatever pops up. And there's a lot of factors that feed you those results. And I think we need to be aware that there's reasons certain results are sent to us and that Anyways, I could go down a whole rabbit hole on that. I just want us to have some intellectual humility and to have some strategies for finding and validating information. And at like a really basic level, I could do this better with my own kids. But I will say there's a lot of times where one of my kids will say something and I will just respond with, and how do you know that? And that kind of leads into this conversation about like, oh, I was watching this YouTube video or, oh, I was this. And I'm like, okay, who's your source? Like, uh, mm -hmm. and so they're, they find me super annoying with that, like terribly yeah. annoying, but I will not let that go. Um, <laughs> so, and, and then the other thing I would just say is I feel like we're getting better at this, but I just really want us to be as strengths-based as possible. And that's not to bury our heads in the sand and, and not look at anything, but I just... I feel like there's still a lot of deficit-based thinking out there, and I want us to stop labeling kids in a way that makes it so they don't get all the opportunities that they deserve and need. And so right. I want us to go back to the phrase that I love so much, the unique and dynamic. I want people to see that as an asset, not a deficit. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Both both of those definitely would keep keep you up at night for sure. All right. Last question as we finish up here, our time together. This this has been a great conversation. Uh, and you know what's coming. If a random person stopped you in a street in the street and asked you, Lainey, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Oh, they'll be so sorry they asked me because I'm gonna like <laughs> not give them a very straightforward answer, but <laughs> I, no. you give them the elevator answer. I'm gonna okay. So <laughs> I would say um, internally for me, because there's an internal and ex an external, if okay. that makes any sense. So externally, sure, yeah. I would say it's about for me, it's about finding joy and gratitude in the moment, um, really appreciating the process and being as present as possible for my family, my friends. Um, my colleagues, you know, everyone around me. Again, I mentioned I'm really a taskmaster. 
Um, I should be more successful in my life for being such a taskmaster, but I've done some things, so I'll, I'll take it. But what, what that taskmaster tends to do is be thinking about two to three steps ahead when I should really be more present in what's happening. So internally, the successful would be the being more present for those things. Externally, for me, it's about lifting others up and amplifying as many voices and making as many people's lives better as possible. So I... I'm all about continuous improvement. I'm all about gratitude and I want to help other people be better and raise them up. And so I don't know, hopefully that's not too, too random of an answer, but those are what I'm thinking about. We always get a benefit from lifting others. And I think yeah. that's part the part that sometimes gets missed. And I think that's definitely a way to, to, to be successful for sure. Listeners, it is almost impossible not to connect with Lainey somehow. Uh, she is on both Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Lainey Rowell. Uh, you'll find Lainey on Facebook and LinkedIn, of course. I'll have links for, in the show notes for all of that. You can go to www.laineyrowell.com. And of course, the Evolving with Gratitude podcast. I'll have links to both the Apple and Spotify uh, links there in the show notes as well. Lainey, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I am truly grateful that you took the time uh, to be with me today. And it's great to see you, friend. It's so good to see you, my friend. Thank you for this opportunity. <laughs> it's a joy to talk to you anytime. We need to do it more often. We should definitely do it more often. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lainey. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. All right. Once again, back with Assess That with Tom and Nat. Natalie, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. Yeah. Great to have you back. We got a couple more of these (laughs) over the course of the summer before we get back into the fall. So I thought one of the angles we could take uh, today is uh, the angle of leadership. And I know that for you, Natalie, you've, you've not been a principal, you've not been an assistant principal, you've not held any of those titles. You certainly have been a teacher leader, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in many significant ways. Um, but I'm wondering about as, as principals and assistant principals are thinking about heading into the school year, we know that some schools have already started. Many schools are mm-hmm. on the verge of starting throughout August and into Labor, after Labor Day. I'm thinking about uh, from a teacher's perspective, what is it that, from your perspective, what is it that administrators need to know or what advice would you have for them as, as they're trying to initiate or engineer a change in their assessment and grading paradigm within the context? Mm-hmm. We often forge ahead. We want to make the, these things happen. But sometimes there's blind spots. So maybe we'll put it that way. Like, What mm-hmm. are some leadership blind spots that if you had a chance to talk to principals or assistant principals, say, hey, this is really important for you to know from a teacher's perspective as these changes unfold. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you might um, talk about with them? Yeah. Well, first of all, the role I held was was really interesting. You called it a teacher leader, but I want to clarify that I was kind of, okay. and I don't know how often this happens in the in the assessment work but I got to hold a role called an assessment lead. So I was kind of like this liaison between, you know, the school administration and the teachers. Cause I wasn't in the classroom. I was truly doing like more of a, mm-hmm. a leadership role, but I didn't have any official authority. So it's kind of just right. floating between everybody. It was right, a very, right. I was like the middle child that loved to talk about <laughs> assessment. People see me coming and they're like, Oh God. But what I learned early and it actually came from advice I got from someone who had walked down this path before and, led a district-wide initiative to change assessment. And they said, you're going to communicate early. You're going to communicate often. 
And then you're going to keep communicating, even when you thought you've already communicated so much that people are done from hearing from you. Mm -hmm. And that's advice that I really took to heart. And time and time again, every time I thought we had communicated enough through enough channels, we needed to communicate more. So that is probably the first piece of advice mm -hmm. is yeah. don't let communication be reactionary, be very proactive. Like we were very lucky in my setting, we had a full-time communication specialist. Mm -hmm. So we actually sat down and we mapped, we mapped out like the first three months of the year. We're like, what are the touch points? What kinds of resources what would they need? And let's go through all the stakeholder groups. Let's think about the teachers. Let's think about the parents. Mm -hmm. um, let's think about the students. Like what are, how are we communicating? What does this look like? And more importantly, what are we allowing them to communicate to us so that throughout the journey, we're getting tons of feedback and being able to course correct and iterate and continue to improve. We kept talking about it being a prototype year. We really use that mm -hmm. language intentionally too. Mm -hmm. um, we're not launching this like as a perfect, look, we did it. We have achieved. We're like, no, this is our first year. We have been reading and thinking and trying this in different spaces and pilot classrooms, but mm -hmm. it's a prototype year and we need your feedback and we need your input. So here's a survey, but if you want to come to a focus group, come to a focus group. Here's some videos. Here's some things you could read. Here's people you could talk to. Mm -hmm. We even did at one point um, role-playing with the teachers. <laughs> so we did it right before we went into parent-teacher interviews because they were so nervous about how do I, how am I going to be the face of this? How am I going to talk about it? So mm -hmm. we just collected all the questions they were worried about and then actually went into all of their different uh, teaching teams and just role-played and just practiced yeah. let's practice this line what did what do you do mm -hmm. when we say this and we modeled right. how we'd respond so that's a big one mm -hmm. and then and this is something you can jump in on because i know you talk about this often but getting into the the policies that are already in place right and if you're going to bring in something new what are you willing to let go of right. uh, what are you willing to stop doing and i know you mm -hmm. talk about that a lot especially with grading from the inside out for sure for sure. It's a big, it's a, no, it's a big one because, you know, I often, you know, I, I, I will again ask flippantly in a workshop, how many of you are busy? And there's not an educator on this planet um, that isn't busy. So we know busy is not an excuse. Busy is not a reason because everyone's busy. And yet we know that some of us are more effective than others. So what is it? Mm -hmm. It's the distribution of our time. It's what we do with our minutes. And so I do think that's a really important talk. And longtime listeners will remember at one point I talked about net zero grading reform, which is what are you prepared to let go of? What are you prepared to mm -hmm. stop doing in order to make room? You know, an example of that is with reassessment, right? Teachers will often say, I get that we need to do reassessment. We know that some students need longer to learn but where do I find the time? Well, the bottom line is you have to make the time because we know some students need longer to learn. So the re-verification of their achievement is going to be essential. So what are you prepared to stop doing? That is a that is a big, big communication point so that teachers understand that we're not, it's not just the add-on because teachers don't have time for the add-on. Sometimes I suppose the, the hardest thing to convince teachers of is to let go of something they chose to do because teachers typically will choose to do things mm -hmm. that they feel are in the best interest of the students they're working working with. Mm -hmm. I want to go back though to mm -hmm. your communication piece because it was making me yeah. think about maybe some specificity. To call them um, talking points I think is a little dismissive because I don't mm -hmm. want to reduce them to sort of sort of political talking points and spin. Okay. But I do want to ask you like what what do you think are some of those key talking points about when you're communicating with families, you're communicating with stakeholders, you're communicating with the community about changing the assessment paradigm. What yeah. what did you find were some of the really key messages that stuck? Mm. Time and time again and I would say this is throughout every stakeholder group, whether it's teachers or parents or students, it's around the number one question they all asked. We did this huge survey of the whole community and it was, I want to know where my kid's at. 
Mm-hmm. Are they at grade level? That came up again and again and again and again. And so when we were talking about moving away from a hundred point scale and percentages, mm-hmm. the biggest question was, well, I won't know where they're at. And so we just put it right back at them. You know, are you able to determine what the difference between a 70 and a 75 is? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you define, how do you describe what that means? And just showing examples of that, it's such a simple thing that I think sometimes we jump to more complex research or analogies that just parents immediately are lost as soon as there's too many like edu speak terms. But if you just go down to we are after meaning and we're after understanding for everybody, like that is our goal. We're actually all on the same team right now. Like everything you're asking for is exactly what we're trying to figure out too. We want to get better at being able to clearly define like this is where they're at. This is what their next step is that we can get them to the next level. And most importantly, we want our students to be in that conversation. And I think Mm -hmm. parents get that really quick too, Mm -hmm. that it's not about, oh, I just have to work harder. So I get more points and I get a higher grade. Like we all, we've all been in that experience. We all know at the core of that, we don't really know what it is we're learning and what it is we're supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. to advance our learning. We're just trying to get more points from the teacher. And that becomes a very different game. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a that very different one for sure. Yeah, that mm-hmm. that one, that's a big one. And you know, you make me think about as you're describing that, you make me think that it's important to show them or explain it to them, mm-hmm. not just tell them, not just say, hey, yeah. guess what? We're getting rid of uh, percentages or we're not you know, getting away from that sort of grading system. Here's why. Let, let yeah. us show you. Here's three samples, right? They could all be um, you know, short little writing pieces or something. Can you, can you, dis, can you distinguish between the levels of quality? Cause that word mm-hmm. for me is a key one in communicating is quality. We're talking yeah. quality over counting. We're talking quality over quantity. We're over quality over completion. You don't harvest points by doing things. You harvest levels or degrees of, of learning by reaching certain levels of complexity mm-hmm. or le- certain levels on criteria. So what are, what, are, mm-hmm. what are other talking points? The percentage ones, show mm-hmm. them. What are other some key points that you think are important to communicate with families, stakeholders, community, et cetera? The emotional impact mm-hmm. of everything being about points and grades. And yeah. I mean, I was coming from a predominantly special education context. Mm-hmm. So for our community, that was a really easy conversation to open up because a lot mm-hmm. of them have they chose to come to that setting because their previous experiences in school were so obtuse to them. They didn't understand what was going on. The kids weren't performing well. Everyone was confused and they were upset. There was so much distress the kid was experiencing. Mm -hmm. And then when we help them to understand that if we use grading and assessment practices that don't make it so clear, what are your strengths and what are your next steps? Those feelings are very natural. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who you are, what your learning profile is. If you get a result that is not favorable to you and you don't know why and you don't know what to do next, it's mm-hmm. a pretty demoralizing, upsetting experience. And just going back to that emotional side of it, it was actually you that told me, I have it in like a book somewhere in all caps letters across the top of a page. It was one of our first conversations where I was bumping up against, like there's always challenge of change, right? And we were talking mm-hmm. on the phone about it and you said, Nat, never forget, change is not clinical, it's emotional. Right. And just take a breath. Don't worry about what the next five steps are logically, but think about like the emotion of the moment and how to hold space for that emotion. And I was like, that's very wise, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is so true. And I think it's underestimated the, mm-hmm. the, the 360 degrees of emotion, right? On the, mm-hmm. on the, on the adult end, you have the emotion of change and change is more emotional than it is clinical. You can have all mm-hmm. the technical know-how, but you have to reach people 
that emotionally, which is why Cassandra, Nicole, and I talk about hope and efficacy and achievement, because yeah. we have to fuse those two. You don't have the emotional silo and the assessment silo. This is one human being who mm -hmm. will have an emotional reaction, right? So mm -hmm. from the adult's perspective, we have to we have to help them understand both the emotional argument and the technical argument for it, but also from the student's perspective, right? That hope, efficacy, and achievement is the idea that students have that emotional reactions. And I find most often, not always, but most often, the one word that sums up the, the generating of negative emotions is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. When you think about any time a student is uncertain about how they're going to be assessed, uncertain about how grades are determined, uncertain as to how to reach the highest level of proficiency. When uncertainty mm -hmm. creeps into our assessment practices, that creates anxiety in, a, in so many of our students and not all of our students. We know there's always exceptions to the rule, but for many of our students, the, the unknown, I, you know, they go home and they say to their mom or their dad or their, or their grandmother or whoever's looking after them, I don't know how to get a four or I can't get a mm -hmm. four. I don't understand what I did wrong. I don't understand this feedback. I don't know like that. The word mm -hmm. uncertainty to me is one that if there's, and so thinking about the question that I, that I led this with advice to leaders, yeah, is make sure there is no uncertainty in your process, in your in your systems, in your structures, in your routines. It's clear, it's transparent, because that's where you're going to have fairness. Kids are kids and parents and families are going to perceive things to be fair when you are open and honest and transparent, as opposed to uncertain about the way things go. So th thoughts on that? Yeah. So yes, and I think to that, um, yeah. I think there's we have to be careful though about chasing. Uh, this objective assessment system, uh, because then I think we fall back into some of the same traps that we're trying to move away from with the 100 101 point scale. Mm. Um, something that I found really powerful in my context was the admin taking a stance of like, standing beside the teachers to say, not only are we learning, first of all, so let's give everyone a lot of like leniency, but mm -hmm. trying to talk to them about what professional judgment means. Right. And the, to the teachers too, I actually think that conversation mm -hmm. between admin and teachers is one of the most powerful ones I mm -hmm. saw for a shift mm -hmm. in that it was like, don't you have, we have to move away from that mindset of we are gathering points to justify a grade that's going into the grade book. Like of we're course. doing, we're doing this whole thing just to justify and to like protect ourselves against an angry parent and instead go, okay, we trust you. You're a professional, mm -hmm. you know, you might put less things in the grade book, but we are going to communicate to parents. We've got your back. And we also mm -hmm. trust you that you are going to make the right call and that you right. know your students. Like some of these teachers have been there for 30 years mm -hmm. and teaching, you know, reading or writing at that level. It's like you've how, you've done the math before and I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but yeah. tons of pieces of work. Exactly. You have assessed yeah. so much student work. Yeah. yeah. Even if you don't have it down to like every single thing mm -hmm. is itemized mm -hmm. and, you know, on a rubric somewhere, you still yeah. have that sense of, you know. Right. Yeah. And there having needs that to, conversation is important, I think. For sure. I agree. And, and I think I, I do think, though, getting back to the word uncertainty, I think there needs to be clarity and certainty that if you show parents, here's the criteria we use, mm -hmm. hand them a couple of samples and, and give them an experience, give the parents, give the families, give give the the, the guardian, who, whoever is there on behalf of the learner, give them some insight mm -hmm. as to how you yeah. make you, how you use your judgment. And then I think clarity really emerges from there. So absolutely. Um, we got about yeah, a minute to go or so Nat, any uh, sort mm -hmm. of last, uh, last one minute or two last minute thoughts, pieces of advice. We can pick mm -hmm. this up again in a couple of weeks, but what are your thoughts? Uh, mm -hmm. Any other things you want to share with Some leaders? 
Oh yeah. It's something that I've been reflecting on a ton since leaving the last position, but um, a conversation that I wish we had had sooner and something I think everyone should have if they're going down this path is what are you, like parents do want frequent communication. They, they love ongoing communication. Their biggest fear across the board is that they're going to be surprised. They're going to think everything's going great. Their kid's doing well in school and lo and behold, they're failing a class and they had no idea. And now they're trying to help their kid dig themselves out of this hole. That's their biggest fear by far. So I think we sometimes get so excited about jumping to a standards based paradigm and we forget to have a really rich conversation about what can we do to make sure that there is still frequent communication that isn't necessarily um, your percentage score updating in power school or a digital grade book. Like what can we replace that with? And being in a K to 12 setting, it was so interesting to see how the different divisions approach this because K to three naturally does this so well because they live in a space of observation and narrative assessment And I was like, oh my gosh, if I could bring every high school teacher down to watch what's happening in grade three, like that would be fascinating, but I never had the time to get there. But they use Seesaw and I know there's things like FreshGrade and there's lots Mm -hmm. of other digital tools to do this, but they would just be constantly updating this live qualitative assessment evidence with summaries of here's what we saw, here's what we're going to work on next. And I think we sometimes forget that as we move up in the grades, if we're going to move away from the um, percentage grading, we need to replace it with something. There does need to be something in there. So something else I saw that worked really well was putting in just descriptive feedback. So they'd still put in their assignments just like normal, but they wouldn't put on a score or grade and they just put in descriptive feedback almost as their own tracking system too. So when it came time to click on, you know, those outcomes and you've got all these comments, you now have all this beautiful evidence to make more of a holistic summative judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that conversation gets missed a lot. I think we just kind of skip over and then it usually becomes a reactionary thing. Like, Oh, what are we going to do to update parents a little mm-hmm. bit more frequently? Cause we're trying to help teachers make these more qualitative judgments, which takes more time. So you do have less evidence in the grade book. That's such a, such a great point. Uh, let's, let's end on that. I love that. The idea that, um, Looking at a score in an online gradebook is not really communicative. Um, certainly, you can gain some things. As we talked last time about a singular symbol can give you some information, as long as we agree on what those symbols represent. But it's never going to replace description about strengths, aspects that need strengthening, ways that families can support learning at home, ways the student mm-hmm. can stretch themselves. That ongoing communication, again, takes away the uncertainty about where mm-hmm. where is my child, where are they in their learning? And we do have that obligation. I think sometimes we forget even high school kids, they're still mm-hmm. minors. Their, their, their families have a right to know how they're doing. And, and whether they're a, a, a tuition-paying uh, member of a private school community or whether they're a member of a public school community, mm-hmm. families have a right to know. And keeping Absolutely. that open line of communication uh, is really critical. So mm-hmm. one more to go uh, in a couple of weeks, Nat. Maybe we'll come back and talk a little bit about sort of the the back-to-school paradigm or something. We'll, we'll figure something out. We've got oh, yeah. one more in our series of Assess That. But uh, until then, uh, thanks again, Nat. Thanks for being here. Anytime. Always a pleasure. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on social media. It's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you've got questions for Natalie and I on Assess That this summer as you head into the fall as well, or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. 
And remember to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events this fall. The next episode will be Monday, August 29th in two weeks. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but a rating or review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone.